off the record, on the rocks. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Off the Record, On the Rocks. How are you doing, my friend, Mr. Ancarino Laura? How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Michael. Uh, happy. We're in deep spring, I feel like now. So happy deep spring. We're en route to summer over here in Los Angeles. Yes, cheers to you, sir. Already uh, looking forward to summer. Cheers. It, you know, we've been riding these waves, these crypto waves over the last six, eight, ten months, really. And I'd say the last two weeks, the narrative has been around Terra Luna, this destabilization of the stablecoin. You and I called it. We've been talking about stablecoins in general, governments having an interest in these stablecoins, how it might be sort of this bridge between fiat and crypto. And it's kind of a necessary thing to make it work. And just in the past couple of weeks... Uh, or, or past week, really, it was this week, this Terra just tanking. I mean, it is gone. It is dead. It was parabolic from beginning to end, and a lot of speculation going on around who knew what and when, who had the leverage, where did the money go, um, what's your take on this? And we'll pull it all the way back around to what is going to be the outcome of it. Well, before I talk about the take of it, I mean, you we talked about this earlier, but you said the the perpetrators of the Terra Luna takedown were sophisticated, right? These were well-coordinated, and I, I think it, it stands to reason well-funded, you know, bad actors. But to say bad actor, to put the word bad in front of it, I, you know, I don't want to say one way or the other. I don't know who they really are, but... We discussed at the end of the last episode really how this all goes down. It's very complicated when you really want to get into it. So for our listeners, it maybe is not important to drill into all those specifics. But the point is, you and I have been talking back since before, I want to say it was even like Halloween, before um, Thanksgiving of last year. The CBDCs are coming. The central bank digital currencies are coming, which means an official crypto, an official tether coin Sorry, not Tether coin. An official stable coin, of which Tether is one, is going to be coming. It's coming from the United States. The United States has tipped their hand. They're talking about e-cash. Like you said, you know, this is that, that on-ramp and that off-ramp from fiat dollars and cents into crypto. And I think the United States, and we agreed, everyone else in the world who's a superpower would be damned if they didn't control those on-ramps and off-ramps. And Terra's fall from grace... Uh, Do Kwan, who uh, is the head of the company, went crashing and burning to the ground. And it kind of sort of feels like it was, you know, someone trying to make a real point. I, I don't know if it was any government uh, intervention or if anyone <clears throat> was behind it, but someone got pissed off enough to say, well, let me show you guys why these stable coins don't work if they're run by a private company. And the value went from what, almost $100 to like less than a hundred right. cent in. However long, I think the, what the, that where we see our way out of it, to answer your question, is we're going to start to see a lot of government regulatory announcements about how, and using this as the example, like you see people of our country, you can't trust these companies. Come over here and use official stablecoin. Or you see, look how much money you lost in your speculative casino gambling. Now come over here and let's you know have you invest in stocks and bonds. They're just they're just shifting the narrative, and I think that this is going to be a major turning point in the story of, of stable coins. I I want to take a quick step back because you you just did a as I was listening to you, 
sort of even defining uh, the definition of of a stable coin. And, and I'm realizing because I've gone down a couple of these rabbit holes and, and, and figuring out what happened and who had the leverage on Doquan and all this stuff. But I think for them, probably the, my, my guess is the majority of our listeners understanding what the concept of the stable coin is and the, this idea of pegging it to the dollar and, and maintaining or even tethering it to the dollar. It, it might be helpful just to, uh, and you described it as this on-ramp and off-ramp, but that's at its basic level, that is what these stable coins are and are designed to, to do, right? Is to maintain that that one to one with in this case uh a US dollar. Is that is that your give me your definition just for the, the sort of uninitiated. Yeah, so I think the definition really is that the this a stable coin is designed to be to have its value, to have its value in something that's understood. So let's say the value is understood in United States dollars, that it needs to be fixed um, to one or more column commodities, I guess, because there are these weird staple coins that are, that are fixed to other random things like like legitimate commodities in, in the world. But these stable coins that we're talking about are pegged, meaning their value is tied to the American dollar. And what that means is, is they are increasing and decreasing the circulation of the supply of the stable coin in real time with these algorithms so that if a whole bunch of people are buying the stable coin, right, U.S.T., then they can make sure by burning off, selling off with the algorithm, the approximate amount on the other side the to excess. always maintain. It's almost like you're thinking about Las Vegas and you're, you're a bookmaker, right? And you want to take bets for the Los Angeles Rams and you want to take bets for the Cincinnati Bengals and you're holding a line. And if someone comes in with 10K for the Rams, well, you got to figure out a way to get 10K for the Bengals. This is how the, the casinos keep the, the bets balanced. So their books are stable, if you will. So the, the stable coin has an algorithm, a computer program that's running that basically does this. So because it's not a human who's observing it at all times, someone who's sophisticated enough can sort of game the algorithm, if you will, which is really what happened with Terra. So by taking huge flash loans and using Bitcoin to do it, which is not a dollar. Like the United States government is the one trying to control the inflation of the dollar. There isn't anyone trying to control the value of Bitcoin. So if you take wild loans out on something, say Bitcoin, because you have inside information that says that the company Terra has Bitcoin stores that they've acquired, and they're using those Bitcoin stores as collateral to effectively help smooth out their relationship to the stablecoin and everything else as their assets, well, then you now realize, well, if I'm a sophisticated hacker, I have a way in. If I can mess with the value of Terra's Luna, which is their other currency, by manipulating that vis-a-vis Bitcoin, then in the sort of one really fast hostile takeover moment, someone takes a massive loan out of hundreds of thousands of dollars of Bitcoin just for the purpose of driving the price of Terra Luna either up or down, which in turn threatens the tie that it has to its own stablecoin. And the algorithm goes nuts. And again, I don't know all the specifics of how they engineered it, because I think there's rumors that there was some social engineering going on, like find you know the one person at the company who's newest, yep. maybe take them out, get some martinis, figure out a password, log into the thing, get some information like there's probably a little bit of that that happened because it is a company right there's people who are behind it and however that worked it was i want to say it went from close to a hundred dollars to 
you know, what it is now. It's like it's in the, I want to say thousands or ten thousands of a dollar. Yeah. I mean, it's basically valueless. A, a, good, a really good friend of mine, and this is like near and dear to my heart, he was in at least 40, 50, 60K on Luna starting at Christmas and just making money hand over fist towards, you know, March 17th, which is burned into my mind because it was uh, St. Patrick's Day and we just caught up and gave him a call and he's just raving about I got to get into this he's like you got to come in you got to come in I'm like you know I I don't know doesn't I don't understand it and then literally within two months I want to say it had cratered it cratered I mean the real cratering happened like within a week but so fast that he sort of you know crying laughing said I just bought back my entire Terra Luna position for less than six dollars oh my just on some hope and prayer that Do Kwan like burns all his remaining Bitcoin to save the community. But of course, it's not going to happen. Look, I think the reason I asked that question and to kind of give that basic understanding is we, we've been talking a lot about this space and NFTs and crypto in general. And I'm realizing that for a lot of people, you know, there's a there's a fear factor. This is unknown. People are asking a lot of questions. And I, I think it's almost why you and I had gone down these stable coin paths was to, to start to, to bridge that gap of, look, there, there are some... Uh, call them reduced risk investments. And now the challenge I have is you, you've got this one that, that we're literally still calling it what was a stable coin that clearly wasn't. Uh, and that there was the ability for somebody, a smart actor, you know, I think that's the difficulty part of like good and bad, but somebody who was able to mm-hmm. frankly just call it exploit, exploit mm-hmm. the un- their understanding of and their leverage. Somebody did the math and knew and understood exactly when Bitcoin came down below 30K that they, you know, they were going to be uh, over leveraged and, and the ability to basically suck the value um, through this, this, <laughs> I don't even know what you call it, you know, um, this hostile takeover. As you, you... An, an unstable coin? <laughs> yeah, um... it's, it's. I, I think it's going to have a, a lasting impact on people who were just maybe warming up to the fact. And and that's why I started also by asking the question of what comes out of this, because I think in the, the, the following, you know, 48 hours or so since this really started kind of breaking through people seeing, or at least hearing about this crash in the crypto markets, I think probably the average person who's, who's curious has heard this bear market that's, that's been happening over the last couple of weeks. Um, you then see this digital euro could come as soon as 2026 from a European uh, an ECB official. And I think that's something we've talked about of you're going to need ultimately some consumer protection in this for people, for, for somebody like your friend, you know, none, none of that's insured. You know, it, it's an investment. It's gone now, but Why? You know, whose fault was it? What was happening behind the scenes? That's where the regulators, I think, are going to be really focused in on. Um, and, and yeah, what's what's your take on the the euro moving digital? Uh, who's next? What's the next country uh, who, who's going to be well, moving into the crypto space? Yeah, so I, I just think the timing, too, though, of, of the announcements is always what is... What, what, what does tell, I think, the, the, the secret story, the between-the-line story, none of these things happen like uh, accidentally. I mean, I know we all like to think that everything in the world is happening, and there's a sort of sometimes there's serendipity, and that can go positive or negative. But I think we all know in this new, highly connected world that there are lots of effects, counter-effects. There's lots of causes that have these ripples that push out. Sorry to use the term 
Ripple, which is another staple coin currency. That's funny. Um, but there are just these like waves that emerge from the rock being thrown to the pond, which have an unintended effect somewhere else. And in crypto, everything is so tightly tied together. And to me, the underlying story of it all is it all comes back to Bitcoin, right? I mean, the only way that this great Terra Luna collapse was engineered was because of the ability to buy and sell Bitcoin. And to do so, lightning fast, you know, shout out to their lightning network for transacting Bitcoin. But sort of during the the panic moments where Do Kwan was basically falling back down to earth from his ascent to heaven, to crypto heaven, um, he gets pulled back down to earth. Um, and what does he do? They're able to transfer. I don't, I don't know if you saw this. I can't remember the exact number, but I want to say it was over a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. It was like a hundred thousand. <clears throat> I to try to save it, but was able to transact like one point something billion in Bitcoin for like, you know, a 20 or $30 worth of fees. Like think about that. The amount of that volume of value moved for like 20 or 30 bucks and instantly, like how long would it take some, you know, European bank to go save some other bank for $1.5 billion? It'd take like weeks and months. Um, so just the fact that that could be the underlying thing to kind of sort of stem the bleeding uh, even though it didn't really have any any permanent effect, was also just sort of fascinating to see. And then for like there to be a beat in the script, right? There's a beat, the curtain closes, you hear a couple stage hands change a few pieces of furniture, the curtains open again a minute later, and here comes Janet Yellen saying, <laughs> you know, this is an example of why consumers need to have protections in this burgeoning, you know, cryptocurrency landscape. Then beat, curtain opens, closes. The digital euro is going to be here before, you know, halfway through the decade. And this is the reason why. And I'll just read you this great quote because the quote tells you everything you need to know. Despite claims that cryptos are a tr trustworthy form of currency free from public control, they are too risky to act as a means of reliable payment, you know, end quote or whatever. And everyone sounds like a genius. All these guys who probably have only heard about crypto in the last few months come out and sound like these guys who've been there forever. And uh, and I think we're just, we're probably the next one we're going to hear. I mean, we've already heard Russia say it, but no one really thought much of the digital ruble. Uh, the digital yuan was talked about in China. I think they tried that in a few cities, and I think actually still running in a few cities, but I'm not sure anybody's really covering that. Um, now you have, you know, El Salvador, who says it's our official currency. They're not talking stablecoin, they're talking Bitcoin. But to have the euro come out, that to me was massive news uh, in the wake of this. Yeah. And the timing is everything. So, you know, we, we, we delve a little bit into conspiracy theory points here on our program because it's, you know, the news is rife with it when it comes to crypto. But the timing, waiting until one of the most public stablecoins crumbles to then come out and talk about your new government-backed stablecoin as a way to protect yeah. your citizens. Perfect timing. Um, I think what, what really will remain to be seen, though, is uh, XRP, which happens to also be called Ripple, um, so I was an unintended pun before, is still in court in the United States battling the SEC. And the outcome of that battle is going to another, be another one of those watershed moments, I think, in the story of stablecoins versus uh, organized government CBDCs. Um, yeah, timing's everything. I think they're going to be very successful luring people away from these dark corners of the exchanges to the official government digital euro exchange. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't seen this. I don't think we've talked about this XRP, but I, I see dear XRP crypto fans, mark your calendars, May 18th and XRP taking a dive 
ahead of tomorrow's SEC versus Ripple court date. So, yeah, that's uh, super. This is, like, all happening right now, yeah. Interesting to be right on the cutting edge of, yeah, and I'm, I'm a stablecoin market ain't stemming from the Terra DPEG with the dollar sent the crypto market into deep, deep red. Now, uh, if bring... you were someone who knew the SEC and you were someone who rumor had it was not doing well in court up until now with their filings against Ripple and XRP, what would give you a better leverage position? Well, how about the taking down and burning of the other <laughs> most massive stablecoin? Oh, convenient timing for the yeah. court date, which is tomorrow. Because <laughs> it, you know, despite its complete, you know, unrelated uh, totally. nature, it's it will be a- the topic of conversation. It will. It's the thing that they're talking about in advance of the hearing. Is that. You know, this reaction, the market reaction, the market angst, as it called it, uh, in in response to what's happening. Yeah, really interesting. I will keep an eye on that one tomorrow. Um, I, I maybe want to keep us moving forward here. Same, same, same thread, but our favorite El Salvador, one of the clear yep. uh, market leaders, country leaders, government leaders, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we know they were buying the dip. That was public information. And now hosting 44 countries to now have this conversation. Do you think they're sharing best practices? Do you think they're they're giving them the case study of how they've set this up structurally? You know, what, what do you think is happening in those conversations? Wouldn't you love to be a fly on the wall? Yeah, and I just think, so for me, this is one of my, this is one of the best pieces of news, I think, that I've heard in a long time because I really do, believe that um president bukele is he is a change maker he's a futurist um you know he's the younger generation i want to say he's barely 40 years old um he has said and he's done all the things that he said and then in the spirit of what the idea of the bitcoin blockchain is or better just the idea of what blockchain technology is which is transparency of transactions and normalizing the playing field for generating value and transferring value. Um, he put his money where his mouth is like yet for the fourth time and said, okay, not only am I saying I'm going to make Bitcoin legal tender check, I'm also going to uh, build out this whole uh, ATM system and install like what was a couple hundred ATMs in my country check. Um, I'm also going to support the entire mining community in my country just to remind the listeners that these guys, I think, I mean, I never heard the term of like thermo, what was it? Thermo um, mining, geothermal electric mining, but harnessing the power of active volcanoes, using water, creating steam, turning turbines, creating electricity, mining Bitcoin. I mean, okay, that's pretty wild. That sounds like a plot of like a James Bond movie slash, you know, Marvel movie. And then, and then say, well, we're not just going to keep this really cool tech to ourselves. I'm going to invite 43 of my friends and let's bring you guys in. And of course, we're not talking Russia, China, the U.S., anybody in Europe, really. We're talking a lot of developing nations, you know, across Africa, across, um, you know, uh, South America, Central America. And basically saying, here is how you all can roll this out. Here is the playbook. So to me, this feels finally like, you know, if you're not a part of the G6, if you're not a part of, you know, whatever other organizations that exist in the world, the H12, the, the Q14, <laughs> if you're not Russia or China or a European country or America or one of their pals, if you're not recognized by the IMF, 
if the central, you know, World Bank doesn't put you on a certain list, you're not really a part of any conversations. And Bukele said, screw all you guys. We're going to have our own summit and discuss our own future without you basically playing, you know, hall monitor and like watching us while we're playing in the yard. You know, this is, uh, I think, a massive step forward for, for Bitcoin, but also just for, I hope, I hope, you know, democratizing the access to wealth for a lot of the world that literally isn't actually discussed much in these uh, global economic forums. It says 32 central banks and 12 financial authorities coming from developing countries, Nigeria, Egypt, Nepal, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Paraguay, Guinea, Madagascar. Yeah, I mean, those aren't names that you typically hear associated with the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank or, uh, yeah, it's interesting that, and also Bukele putting his neck out there to say, not only did I do it, did I say I was going to do it, I took the risk, I did it, but now I'm confident enough to now go share this with my peers. That's that's some true leadership. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm reading the rest of this here. They've amassed $60 million, so over 2,000 Bitcoins that, that he, that El Salvador, has has acquired yeah, on, its, I, on its balance I didn't know sheet. the number of them, but I do love that every time there's a dip, he very, like, giddily will tweet and say, like, you know, I'm picking up this many more on the dip. I mean, he is, he's right there. He is right there actively and very publicly promoting his every move. Yeah. And that, too, is something that, you know, you talked about benevolent dictators being what we actually need to, like, move things forward sometimes. Now, he's, he was elected. But he certainly is behaving like a benevolent dictator and that he's just waving his finger and legislation's passed in seven days and then waving his finger and 44 countries are in El Salvador, like watching the volcano tour. I mean, he's he's right there. He's really making waves. And I hope, I hope, hope that this starts to, to cause this effect, which, you know, if enough, you look at the populations of those 44 countries, add up the populations of the citizens of the 44 countries that he invited and I haven't done this, but I will bet you that you're talking like multiple, multiple United States worth of people. You're starting to amass a really large scale sort of crypto friendly scale country, if you will. Yeah. And if everyone in that is playing the same way, then borders <clears throat> don't matter. And that's that's a new power that the blockchain's provided. I think is pretty, uh, pretty exciting. Even more reason why Janet Yellen and the regulators want to get out in front, because otherwise, then you're right. Then all of a sudden they, they would lose that top seat in the financial markets because the borders would be irrelevant if everybody else is comfortable and acquainted with and knows how to use the powers of these these new technologies and these these currencies and these ways of transacting. And, and that gets me to another kind of moving us back to the more consumer side of this thing, but we're continuing to see mass market adoption. There's an example from a government level, crypto-friendly countries as you described, and simultaneously, you've got the Web2 companies continuing mm -hmm. to take this deep dive into the NFT landscape, making it yet more accessible, more easy to use. You, the UX UI of authenticating your NFT profiles now, Spotify, the next to come along. And this one resonates with me. And I know I'm mm -hmm. moving quickly here from government cryptocurrency to mass consumer adoption of NFTs. But these things to me are completely interrelated i just always come back with starbucks i mean like that's the best example of how you can move from a cryptocurrency at a government and a and a transacting level globally all the way to the power of an individual nft 
And the reason this one resonates with me is music. So I've watched the NFT landscape sort of come through the fashion, retail, e-commerce markets, brands realizing that there's a need and an opportunity to build a community and reward a community with the use of NFTs. And there's no doubt in my mind that music is the next one. I think we've talked about your your friend with Warps. I see these guys everywhere now, by the way, with mm-hmm. the AI programmatically generated NFTs. It's smart for Spotify to get in on this from a royalties perspective, from a community building perspective. If now artists can you know, not just see who's listening to their music, but see who's paying for it and continue to reward them with token or gated access through the NFT, that to me is where this is going. Spotify, I think the announcement is just simply the ability for, for artists to display their NFT collections. But what's the next logical step is the ability to transact. And now Spotify becomes a true marketplace, not just to, to sell music, but to sell access to the artists or whatever else that NFT can represent. Uh, what, what else have you heard or, or any thoughts there on the Spotify uh, yeah, no. So you're, I think you're spot on there because, um, and there's a couple of things. The, the the music industry is we we all I think we knew there was going to be a, a real deep tie-in, and then the early tie-ins were these uh, elaborate I would still call them NFT projects, right? You you purchase this NFT that's very unique. There's one of ten or whatever it is. Post Malone, I think was a great example at the time. Um, you're going to pay a ton of money, but what is it going to be if you have these? Uh, you know, uh, Oculus, you know, quests, you'll put it on, you'll have this experience of having Post Malone in your living room, doing a private show, singing an unreleased song, you're going to pay untold tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars for this experience, right? There's these luxury things. The Wu-Tang Clan is going to release two albums on vinyl that come with two NFTs, and it's on auction, you know, for right. a million bucks. Collectors or whatever. Collectors items. But now bring it back down to what I would re- refer to maybe the retail music listener, as an analog to the retail investor. And Spotify has said straight up, and this is on the heels of Instagram saying, we're going to have an NFT marketplace. We don't really know what that means, but that's what they say. Title, uh, music streaming service, which they, you know, it is pretty, you know, it's, it's, it's down there in terms of usage relative to places like Pandora and Spotify um, and Apple Music, but still interesting because of the people behind it. They're talking NFTs. Spotify comes out and they do say, you're going to be able to display your NFTs in your profile and you're going to be able to click to go buy them and in the marketplace we're going to create. And there's some beta of that marketplace. I didn't get invited. I guess I'm not that that good of a Spotify user to get the invite. But then what started making me think when I heard you just talking to kind of open up my a different door in my mind is the, the thing that artists lost, I think, and I'm going to put this out there because I'm still like, I'm thinking through it, but so, so bear with me. But the things that artists really lost they gained a lot, but they also lost a lot when the streaming services came out, when artists had to acquiesce to the large streaming giants to say, okay, I'll put my music on here. Your customers will pay a subscription fee, and then I'm going to get some small percentage per play. And however they structure the model, we always know historically artists have been exploited by record labels, and I'm sure are being exploited by streaming services, unless you're, you know, you know, A-class tier artist. Well, what did they lose? They really lost a sense of community. And you're talking about that access to the artist. You know, what did the Board Ape Yacht Club teach us about the landscape of people who want to be a part of a community? What would they pay to be a part of it? Well, if you're an artist and you're now able, you're not that concerned about selling an exclusive track. 
you're selling an NFT on your page that maybe is at a very low price, an accessible price, but that gives you access to that community. If you come to the show to buy merch and you can show that you have the NFT in your wallet of like the roadie, uh, I'll make it up, like the roadie giraffe, because that's their little icon for their, you know, not an eight, but a giraffe. And I show that, I go, boop, and now I get half off of all the swag at the merch table. Maybe it's access to the show to get first tickets. Maybe it's whatever. It isn't, okay, go in here and do the Dutch auction for, you know, 40 ETH to get the really unique whatever. It's like, no, everybody can just show up, pay the five bucks. It's almost like tipping the artist, you know, on a YouTube channel, but getting access to that community. So I think the interesting narrative steal of the music community for crypto is, like, no one wants to talk about Bitcoin anymore. It's almost like Bitcoin is boring, right? Like Bukele is talking about it, but don't worry about that. We're we're Web 2, and Web 2 loves NFTs, <laughs> and Web 2 loves, like, stable coins, you know? Don't talk about, stop talking about Bitcoin. It doesn't even exist to these guys. So I think what's fascinating is we're going to see Spotify and others full-on dictate the narrative to their massive audiences. If Instagram and Spotify succeed, how many hundreds of millions of people will be exposed to NFT right. as a community token. I think that's a really cool twist that we're going to see here. Well, two two quick thoughts. One, you I don't know if we talked about um, Zuckerberg coming out with Instagram and the NFTs and the creator fees. So one of the uh, benefits of an NFT you know, on the blockchain is that the secondary sales, that there can be a creator fee that's in the smart contract paid back to the original creator. Obviously, that has massive implications for a musical artist, but Zuckerberg coming out and saying that I forget what the fee was going to be, but that Facebook was only going to take 49% or something like that. Um, You know, it's it's ridiculous when you actually think about uh, and it actually when you said title a minute ago, I was like, man, we talked about title a while ago. And I found this article from June 28th, 2021. So almost a year ago. And you'll see Mm -hmm. exactly where I'm going to connect this thread here. Squares Jack Dorsey says title is interested in exploring NFT opportunities. And that's from almost a year ago, which square acquired a majority stake in title last year. Mm -hmm. So watch that inner connection there between what Jack Dorsey is doing and what we've talked about since he left Twitter what he's building there and what that now means in terms of NFTs, titles, and artist contracts. If A&R were exploiting con- uh, exporting artists and taking all the revenue, all of a sudden that becomes completely obsolete if your, quote, contract can be a smart contract where the, res- the, the royalties are just baked into the contract and that's it. That's all there is to it. Uh, and also this idea of fractionalized ownership of the music, you know, where... You, you could have Jay-Z putting out an album and fractionalizing the ownership at a very high cost, and those people own the IP rights and you know all the things that can come out of that. But anyway, I'm connecting that dot between NFTs, what Facebook is doing with creators, and here you've got you know uh, Jay-Z and Jack Dorsey who likely more sit on the, the side of, of benefiting the creators. That's my guess mm-hmm. anyway. Uh, way more than what Zuckerberg is out there graciously saying they're going to give artists their, yeah. their 51% cut uh, through their marketplace. And But remember that graciousness is way more gracious than Apple Music. 
I don't even know what their royalties are. What what is the well, take? I, I, the last I checked, it was I thought it was a thirty seventy split. I think Apple takes seventy. Oh I think wow, is thirty. Yeah, that's the traditional gonna, model. So I think you're right on on that. It, those walled gardens getting broken down. It's the same concept of these governments in the U.S. now up against the these this consortium of countries that can all rally together to make Bitcoin the the official currency, and all of a sudden they've got more buying power. And, and and transacting power as a as a consortium, it's the same thing. I think you, you're going to start to see against these walled gardens of Facebook, Instagram, and Spotify. Even though we're talking about them getting into this NFT space, because there's nothing stopping anybody else from building the next thing, whatever that next thing is going to be. But it, as long as it's truly community driven in terms of rewarding the original creator. And making that transparent, all of a sudden, me as a consumer, I feel good because when I'm buying, I, I, I know more of my purchase is now going to the original creator without these middlemen taking cuts. This is what we've been talking about, the democratization of this technology and what it can do. So I, I think it's going to be a super interesting period of time. And that, that's going to bring me back all the way back around to our boy Elon Musk and Twitter with, with my mention there of Jack Dorsey and take that same concept, that same thing we've been talking about, Twitter as the original metaverse, the original town hall. They've gone all in on NFTs and you know being able to verify your, your profile picture. Uh, Elon saying that you know we needed to, to, to have Twitter to be this, this, this guiding light of democracy and free speech, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, but wait a second. Uh, how many people on here are real? And how many are bots? So the whole thing seems like it's on ice now. What's what's your what's your take on that uh, debacle? Yeah, well, let me uh, tie those two last points together because uh, what I think what we're we're hinting at is this future state where the nature of the NFT itself is evolving. Uh, the idea of a fractionalized NFT really only exists in a world where there is specific rarity and scarcity of an NFT. There's one or two of these albums, and there's a thousand part owners, and we got to go create a DAO to decide who has the ownership and all this craziness. Well, I sort of see the Spotify path maybe veering, or I should say, uh, conflating, aligning with the Twitter path, which is what Musk has been saying all along. Like, we need to have the uniqueness of the Twitter profile. The NFT, as your avatar, will prove because the blockchain knows the ownership of the NFT of who you actually are. What a great way to combat a bot account if you're required to use an NFT as your, what if you're required to use an NFT to have a Twitter profile now? Well, that suggests that Spotify is also playing the same game that Dorsey wanted Title to play all along, which is, well, what's the artist lost in this crazy swirl of crypto and tech and Web3? Well, they've lost their community. They've lost their identity. What can they do? Well, they can sell a bunch of unique shit to get money. Okay, they have a, a recourse maybe where they can sell some stuff to recoup some of the costs they've lost via bad A&R deals. But what do they gain? Well, they gain this community. What does that mean? Well, if I come to an artist page on Spotify and I'm able to buy my favorite artist, this kind of NFT, that kind of NFT, and there is no scarcity, right? The artist doesn't want the NFTs to, quote, sell out. There is an unlimited number of the 50% off merch NFT, and I would like you to be a part of the community, so buy one, then perfect. Well, if, you know, if then go to Twitter and say, all right, well, I'm the Twitter creator, I'm like an artist in this thing called the first metaverse. And I am using an NFT to show who I am on the blockchain 
to verify that I am the human I claim to be. But at the same time, I'm now allowed to sell NFTs off of my Twitter profile, the same way an artist can off Spotify. And now my followers, of which let's say I have 10,000, I can upsell them to these really great uh, Twitter NFTs that I have either created myself or gotten someone else in my community, one of my followers to create. And now I have the ability to drive value off of a community that I have personally groomed, but now via the new technology that Musk is calling into question is it only works if everyone is a person. Because if I, you know, I think you and I both know we've been around long enough when all the bots are removed from YouTube, removed from Instagram, removed from Twitter, when a world, when a fake Charles Hoskinson Cardano live stream with 8,000 viewers right now can just disappear. When the Elon Musk, uh, Floki Inu token, you know, hustle promotions on Instagram are just gone because the bots are gone. When Twitter has no more weird bots flaming you and spamming you, then we can get back to the true meaning of community. And maybe in a weird way, what we thought the, the NFT would solve, which is like the Sotheby's auction, is actually going to really solve identifying human beings and communities online. That to me seems like the exciting thing that we're seeing. The authenticity time. of it. And I'm going to keep us going here for one, one other topic and we may yeah. have to come back to it, but it's a big topic. When you were just describing this, this idea of buying my NFT or buying my music off of Spotify, going to Twitter, sort of flexing it, showing it, you know, uh, showing people my identity or it becomes a part of my identity. And then now I can sell other things in there. The, the thought that came to mind is this value creation through a play to earn where now all of a sudden I, the game is the game of life. <laughs> I mm -hmm. listen to this music. You know, me, I, I, you, you think I'm cool because you know, I listen to this music and you know, and can trust that I listen to this music because you can see I've purchased it. Here you go. Here's my verified NFT. Now you can buy things from me. That is the whole concept of play to earn. And I think that that is where we have seen some initial rumblings here of even that phrasing, that PTE phrasing. Uh, I think it's mostly been associated with the gaming world. And I've said multiple times on this, this podcast, I don't, I don't play video games, but what I just described and what we just talked through of buying music on Spotify, flexing it on my Twitter profile, and then using that influence to basically sell additional, that that's, that's the game. That to me is why maybe you're seeing this this fall from from the play to earn to whatever that is, whatever that is that we just described. Um, this is an interesting one to unpack, but yeah. play to earn is is changing. It's changing dramatically, and and what you said, the game of life, which is a game, of course, everybody knows well from like the '60s or whatever it is. But it is true, and I, I was thinking, replace that word life with like. It's like the game of like. You know, Zuckerberg had that aspect right, which was way back when you liked stuff. And that's how you would find people of similar minds who also liked stuff. Now, we all know today that that whole at scale doesn't really hold up because anybody can just run around the web hitting like buttons and game it. But if you're transacting some amount of value to get an NFT and that becomes the new like on my profile, and then take it one step beyond, like I wasn't just talking about a Twitter profile with my NFT as my avatar proving I'm real, plus my Spotify NFTs there that shows my favorite bands that I'm gonna go watch in concert right now, I'm talking 
Twitter will have a way for me to make an NFT and attach it to my profile because now I'm the creator. So I can show you what I like. And now I'm going to show you some other things that I think are really interesting that I'm creating. And maybe the minority of people are going to do that. But you know what? The minority of humans on this world, you know, make recorded music. So there's going to be a need for the, the creator need is going to be bigger than ever. And I feel like the accessibility to the creators via the NFTs will become more available than ever because it's going to be not for ETH to do something. It's going to be something much more nominal. And you're not going to have to worry about these fancy words like minting and this and okay. burning tokens and airdrops and like, don't confuse me. Just I have a Twitter app. I have my NFT link. You just tap your face and say link NFT, open wallet, boom, and then add it. Maybe there's only three. Like instead of the little bio where it says 200 words about yourself and everyone writes things like creator, father, dog lover, outdoor hiker, something, something in this. And you're like, oh, great. That hasn't been updated in like 15 years. <laughs> but now maybe there's three NFTs that sit in that same little bio slot and you can decide what you're going to show, which of those little aspects of your real interests and that's how you're going to drive conversation within your set your slides of the metaverse good stuff we will come back to play to earn next week i will leave it there thank you again sir off the record Thank you. always a pleasure michael on the rocks